0: All right, we are in Revelation chapter 12. And as I promised you last week, we will finish up this morning in Revelation 12. I have two points this morning, but before you get excited, I have about 10 sub points. <laughs> uh, so we are closing out chapter 12. And I wanted to, and we'll pray in, in just a second, but I wanted to. Um, Kind of do a check on where we are in our study in the book of Revelation. And and it is very easy to get caught up in the minutiae, if you will, and lose sight of the fact that the book of Revelation is an eminently practical book. And we need to make sure that as we study through this, it's not with the purpose of coming away with a solidified view of the end times although that is absolutely exemplary if we can but the intent is very plain and very simple and it's stated very early in our in our study in the book of revelation which is it is for the blessing and the encouragement of the church of god and so in order to do that or be that it 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 must be practical and it is but but I want to ask the Lord this morning as we study this, that this message in particular, because I think this is really the theme verse, if you will, of the book of Revelation that I want to focus on this morning. Let's ask the Lord to lead us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time that we have together. We ask, Lord, that you would renew our focus on your word, that you would help us to set aside the distractions and the things that would pull our attention away. From where you want it to be this morning, we ask that you would help us to understand how we are to overcome the enemy. And your word is very clear. We ask for clarity in our understanding. And Lord, that this, as we just talked about, would be practical for your church, that we would apply this and it would impact our lives, Father, that we would not walk away without having been changed because of your word. We ask that you would help us with that. We praise you for what you have done in securing the salvation of your people. We thank you for our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, so last week we looked at the first six verses or completed our study in the first first six verses, and there were multiple applications, all of which I'm sure you will remember. So I will briefly remind you of those this morning but we we talked about the reality of spiritual warfare there are um there is a a, a war going on around us that in many ways and cases we can be ambivalent to um but it's no less real and it has actual real life ramifications because it's not an imaginary war it's not a pretend war it is as real as you and I sitting here this morning, looking at each other and it has ramifications for our lives. And and really revelation 12 is dealing with the why, why is there spiritual warfare? So if we, we come away from our study in the book of revelation and we don't understand that, then we failed, but the church is redeemed. Satan is judged. And because of that, he is angry in the very last verse of Revelation chapter 12, it reminds us of the fact um, that the dragon became furious with a woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, which is who, by the way? Us. On those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's how chapter 12 ends. But but 12 reminds us that, that God is declaring for you and I the end from the beginning. And the reason that he does this is because he wants us to know that he is sovereign. So we talked about this morning, every act of war that Satan commits against the church is within the purview, the authority of God's sovereign, providential hand and care over his church and over his people. Nothing happens to the church in regard to spiritual warfare that is not for our good and his glory. Um, We talked about the fact that God is sovereign over sin in regard to Matthew 1. We brought that up this morning. Though we are currently the target of Satan's wrath, we're born up on what kind of wings? Eagle's wings. We are given divine protection in the wilderness where he sustains us. Um, And then we were reminded as we closed last week that the day of the Lord is at hand and we're to keep our eternal perspective. So two points this morning I want to talk about. The accuser is cast down in verses 9 through 10. And then verse 11 is where I want to spend the bulk of our time. Excuse me. This morning as we wrap up in chapter 12. Verse 9 says and and the great or mega dragon that is the huge serpent was thrown down that ancient serpent that is the archaic original serpent when it talks about the ancient serpent it's taking us where in scripture back to the garden the one and the same is what john is telling us that serpent was thrown down who is called the devil The Diabolos and Satan, the adversary, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. There is a reminder here in verse 9 and verse 10 of the character of the enemy. And I want to highlight for you something that jumps out at us, and that is the Diabolos. Notice what the devil means by name. The devil, in the Greek, diabolos, to slander, to accuse, to defame. And notice something else that I think is key, and I want you to put your mental finger on it, if you will. He is a severer of relationships. Say that fast five times. A severer of relationships where where is the first example we find in scripture of him attempting to sever relationship well the ancient serpent we go back to the garden of eden in genesis chapter 3 whose relationship is he looking to sever adam and eve and adam and eve and god any relationship that god had ordained as good satan as the devil is looking to sever, so bear that in mind. You think about what Satan does within the church. We talk about division in the church. What is he? What is he attempting to do? Sever that brotherly relationship. He's also called uh, the adversary, the one who stands opposed. Um, he is by definition the antichrist. He stands opposed to everything that, that is Christ. Notice also he's called the deceiver. In the Greek, it's the word planon. It, it means, this is interesting, he causes the souls of men to wander. Mm-hmm. Satan, the deceiver, and the word deceive there, the, the idea of deception is to cause the souls of men to wander. And I thought about 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verse seven, always learning in what? Never able to arrive at the, at the knowledge of truth. Satan loves to have us in an always ever pursuit of truth. Doesn't he? Keep searching. In fact, many people describe their spiritual journey as I'm just searching for the truth. Satan is happy to have us in that state. He's happy to. Because as long as we continue to wander and search and we stay away from this, then we won't be led to the truth. But in these verses, we're reminded again of the nature and the character of our enemy. He's the devil, the slanderer, the accuser, the defamer, the unjust criticizer, the severer of relationships. Spurgeon says this um, regarding our enemy. He says this ever active enemy desires to tempt as well as accuse. He would have us and sift us as wheat In calling him the dragon. The Holy Spirit seems to hint at his mysterious power and character to us. A spirit such as he is must ever be a mystery in his being and working. Satan is a mysterious personage, though he is not a mythical one. We can never doubt his existence if we have once come into conflict with him, yet he is to us all the more real because he is so mysterious. If he were flesh and blood, it would be far easier to contend with him. But the fight with his spiritual wickedness in high places is a terrible task. As a dragon, he is full of cunning and ferocity. In him, force is allied with craft. If he cannot achieve his purpose at once by power, he awaits his time. He deludes. He deceives. In fact, he is said to deceive the whole world. What power of deception must reside in him when under his influence, the third part of the stars of heaven are made to fall? And myriads of men in all ages have worshipped demons and idols. He has steeped the the minds of men in delusion so that they cannot see that they should worship none but God, their maker. He has styled the old serpent, and this reminds us how practiced he is in every evil art. He was a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. After thousands of years of constant practice and deception, he is much too cunning for us. If we think that we can match him by craft, we are grievous fools, for he knows vastly more than the wisest of mortals. And if it once comes to a game of policies, he will certainly clear the board and sweep our tricks into the bag. To this cunning, he adds great speed, so that he is quick to assail at any moment, darting down upon us like a hawk upon a poor chick. He is not everywhere present, but it is hard to say where he is not He cannot be omnipresent, but yet by that majestic craft of his, he so manages his armies of fallen ones like a great general. He superintends the whole field of battle and seems present at every point. No door can shut him out. No height of piety can rise beyond his reach. He meets us in all our weaknesses and assails us from every point of the compass. He comes upon us unaware and gives us wounds which are not easily healed. From our text, we're reminded here that Satan has been deposed of all of his honor, dignity, and heavenly position. Isaiah 14, 12 through 17, I won't read the whole text because of time this morning, but how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? Literally, in in the King James Version, it, it reads Lucifer. In the original Hebrew, it's the shining one. You who shine so brightly, how are you fallen? And the answer, of course, is you wanted to ascend into the throne of God. In his casting down, though, note that Christ has been exalted. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago, Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This This is an allusion to the theme verse that we'll look at in just a minute, meaning what is it that gives believers, victory and safety over this great enemy that we have. But Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He is deposed in his original power and greatness in heaven. Scripture does not tell us what his rank was, but we know that he was up there with Michael and Gabriel in terms of His strength and glory as an angel. But in his being cast down, Christ has been exalted. And we should note that Satan has been given a temporary area of operation, as we read in uh, our text this morning. Rejoice, O heavens, verse 12, and you who dwell in them. By the way, who are those who dwell in heaven? Is it just the people that have died and gone to heaven that the scripture is referring to? No, it's referring to the redeemed. We are as good as there. Our home is there because he contrasts that with the earth dwellers. He says, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. The earth and sea referring to the earth dwellers because he knows that his time is short. He's been given a temporary area of operation. That is the world, the earth, those which are in heaven are beyond his grasp. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And this text reminds us that his angels or demons were cast down with him. And verse 10 says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, that is the power, the dunamis, the miraculous might or strength, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. What ushered in the kingdom of Christ? It was a death blow. Yes. Yes, because this is going to take us to verse 11. The death blow to Satan, as we will see, is the shed blood of the Lamb. And this is pointing us to the cross. The accuser has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. If you look at the original Greek for that word, the accuser, it it brings with it a bit of a legal term, a term of, of the courtroom, the term prosecutor. Satan is called in the original text here, a prosecutor of the brethren. What is he doing? He's accusing, and he does it relentlessly, and he's been doing it for a long, long time. We have a couple of examples in the Old Testament where Satan is is shown to us as being the accuser, the prosecutor, if you will, and there's two examples that we see. First is in Job chapter one, right? Sons of men go to God and, and God addresses Satan and says, "Where? what have you been doing? And he says, just roaming to and fro, doing mischief. And the Lord says, the Lord says to him, have you checked out my servant Job? And what is his response? Yeah. You know why? He is above reproach. Why his testimony is so strong. What is, what does he do? He immediately accuses Job of sin. What does he say? Lord, if you remove your hand from him, what? He he will curse you to your face. He's not really your child. He is a child of convenience. You've blessed him. And because of your blessing on his life and his family, That is why he is loyal to you. And we know the story. In all of this, Job neither cursed God nor sinned. So there's a false accusation there, but there's another example of one that is not false. If we we read Zechariah chapter three, it's a picture of Joshua the high priest who stands before the angel of the Lord. Satan, the scripture says, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the picture that we get of of Joshua, the high priest, is that he is clothed with filthy garments. This is in Zechariah chapter 3. Satan stands there to accuse him, and he's clothed in filthy garments. What is, the, what is that picture telling us? When Satan accuses us of sin, it's not always false accusation, is it? And therefore comes with a great deal of of power, if you will, against our lives. But the key is in verse 4 of Zechariah chapter 3. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. In other words, the righteousness of Christ. So what exactly is meant by the casting down of Satan, specifically who has conquered him. The salvation, power, the kingdom of Christ, the cross. At the cross, a superior kingdom was ushered in with the authority to act. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The enemy has been cast down. He has lost his teeth, if you will, in terms of his prosecutorial authority over the believer. Why? Well, point two that I want to look at this morning, the picture of the overcomers, it says in verse 11, and they conquered, the word conquered there in the Greek is the word nikeo, we get the word "Nike." Those of you that are wearing your Nikes this morning, you are overcomers, if only on the treadmill. Ah. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word testimony there is martoria. It's the idea of being a martyr. For they love not their lives, even unto the death. There are two keys to victory here that I want to point out for you this morning, and this is where I want to spend our time. The shed blood, that is the work of the Lamb, is the key to victory over the dragon. It's the key. The second piece to that, though, is the blood must be applied. It is one thing to talk about the blood of Jesus and Demons quake in their boots when the blood of the Lord Jesus is brought to bear. But if it's not applied to me, there is no authority in my life over the enemy. None. So we have the work of the lamb, but then it must be applied. Those are the two keys here regarding the overcomers. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb. For those of you that remember, we did a study through the book of Leviticus um, a couple of years ago. One of the things that you cannot walk away from the book of Leviticus without coming to the conclusion is that Leviticus is a bloody book. In fact, the Bible is a bloody book. There is over 350 references in the Bible regarding blood. I remember um many years ago when I was much much younger we had someone in our church family who was went to my dad who was pastor at that time and told him can you please stop talking about the blood every time you talk about the blood it makes me lightheaded and I want to faint <clears throat> what do you think my dad did he didn't stop preaching about the blood <clears throat> We'll provide CPR. Yeah, we'll we'll give you smelling salts when you pass out. The Bible, though, is a bloody book. And the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is drenched in blood. The book of Leviticus is all about the blood. And, And nearly all of these references point to the apex of every bloody sacrifice. All of the Old Testament sacrifices in which blood was shed point to what? The sacrifice of the lord jesus on the cross of calvary why here's the, the million dollar question this morning why is the shed blood of the lamb a conquering weapon for the dragon why why is it critical and it doesn't talk i want you to notice that they did not overcome him by their advanced spiritual condition They did not overcome him by being good Christians. Doesn't say that, does it? Excuse me. It says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. I want you to see what the scripture has to say about what the lamb has done. And Jesse, if you will go to the last slide, I wanted to give you a copy of my partial notes on this, because this is really the application of our message this morning. The Bible goes into great detail about what the lamb has accomplished. And I know you guys know this, but I have violent tendencies. As I'm thinking about these, there's 10 aspects of what the lamb accomplished with the blood. And I'm thinking about individual bullets in a magazine, in a gun that is for our defense against the enemy. Yes, I know that's violent. But 10 10 of these that scripture tells us about. First of all, the shed blood is promise-keeping, bride-redeeming, ransom-paying, peacemaking, wrath-absorbing, justice-satisfying, place-trading, or we would say substitutionary, conscious, conscience-renewing, eternity-preserving, and saint-sanctifying. It's a lot of bullets right there. Look at what the scripture says in regard to promise keeping. Matthew twenty six twenty eight. This is regarding our our coming to the Lord's table, the the ushering in of the Lord's supper. This is the blood of what the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The covenant is an unbreakable agreement, an unbreakable promise. Who made that promise? Father, the Son spirit and securing the salvation of his people that that covenant you remember the first example of of the covenant that god gives to to abraham he puts abraham into a a deep sleep and he severs the animals and puts bloody sacrifice on both sides and passes through Mm -hmm. if i don't keep my word may this happen to me that's the picture here The salvation of God's people is absolutely secure because it is secured by the blood of the lamb. Secondly, it is bride redeeming. And I'm going to move quickly through these. I wanted you to see this so you could have the the scripture references as well. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Revelation one five, we are reminded from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, what? By his blood. Thirdly, the blood of the lamb is ransom paying. 1 Peter one eighteen, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but... With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that so your faith and hope are in God. You are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Revelation five nine. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nations. Vivid picture of this in Hosea, isn't there? Hosea, God, God says to Hosea, take a wife, a prostitute, marry her, and she's going to go cheat on you. And when she goes and and cheats on you and, and lives with another man, I want you to take care of her, take her food. Hosea knocks on the door and delivers food to his wife and this other man. When that man gets done with her and sells her into slavery, God says to Hosea, go down to the square and buy your wife. That's the picture of being ransomed by the blood of the lamb. That's us. The blood of the lamb is peacemaking. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is leading up to first Corinthians 11 that, that we look at for the Lord's supper in first Corinthians 10, 16, he says the cup of blessing that we bless, he's referring to the Lord's supper here. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ The the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? How can we participate in the Lord's table if peace has not been made on our behalf with him who we were at war with? Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking about the Jew-Gentile dynamic. We see on the news yesterday, Israel is at war with Hamas again. They'll never be at peace. The only thing that can make peace between two enemies at odds is the blood of the Lamb. Colossians 1.20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is the shed blood of the lamb that makes peace. and then it's wrath absorbing. Romans 3:25 whom God put forward as a propitiation. We don't use the word propitiation often in our normal conversation, but what does it mean? It, it means an appeasement of wrath. God put forth the lamb to appease whose wrath? We talk about salvation being salvation from what? Well, the Lord saved me from my sins. Well, that's a consequence of what he did. But what is it? What am I really saved from? The wrath of God, whom God put forward, the Lord Jesus, as a propitiation, why or what? By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God does not ignore sin. When the scripture says he passes over sin, what is he doing? Is he sweeping it under the rug and ignoring it? No. To do so would be contrary to his nature. When God passes over sin, it's because that sin has been paid for and his wrath has been satiated. Next, it's just as satisfying. Romans five nine. since therefore we have now been justified, how? By his blood. Much more shall we be saved, what? From the wrath of God. This is the essence of what defangs Satan right here. When Satan brings accusation in the, the court of heaven, if you will, picture that heavenly courtroom, where Satan is the prosecutor and he goes to the throne of God and says, that saint, your child, he isn't acting like your child. He doesn't really belong to you. And what does our advocate say? The scripture says we have an advocate. Who is that in the courtroom of heaven? That is our defense attorney. And what does he say when Satan brings accusation? No, I paid for that child with my blood. What does Satan say to that? There's nothing he can say. The, the blood of the lamb is place trading or substitutionary. What do I mean by that? Well, John in 1 John one twenty nine, after they asked him if he was the coming Messiah, he said no. And in, in verse 29 of John 1 says, behold the lamb of God seeing Jesus coming, which says what? Takes away the sin of the world. Here's Charles Spurgeon again on this. He says next by the blood of the lamb, listen to this. This is, this is so good by the blood of the lamb. We understand our Lord's death as a substitutionary sacrifice. Let us be very clear here. It is not said that they overcame the arch enemy by the blood of Jesus. Now, we're talking about Jesus here, but listen, listen to what Spurgeon is saying here. It is not said that they overcame the archenemy by the blood of Jesus or by the blood of Christ, but by the blood of the lamb. And the words are expressly chosen because under the figure of a lamb, we have set before us what? A sacrifice. The blood of Jesus Christ shed because of his courage for the truth or out of pure philanthropy or out of self-denial conveys no special gospel to men and has no peculiar power about it. Truly, it is an example worthy to to beget martyrs, but it is not the way of salvation for guilty men. Do you see what he's saying here? If Jesus is what progressive Christianity would call him, a good man, a prophet, then his death, though while it is an example of martyrdom, is tragic. It has no salvific power, does it? And it's certainly not the hope of sinners. But listen to what he says as he continues. If you proclaim the death of the Son of God, but do not show that he died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, you have not preached the blood of the Lamb. You must make it known that to the chastisement of our peace was upon him and that the lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all or you have not declared the meaning of the blood of the lamb there is no overcoming sin without the substitutionary sacrifice you hear that there is no overcoming sin without the substitutionary sacrifice the lamb under the old law was brought by the offender to make atonement for his offense And in his place, it was slain. This was the type of Christ taking the sinner's place, bearing the sinner's sin and suffering in the sinner's stead. And thus vindicating the justice of God and making it possible to him for him to be just and the justifier of him that believeth. Listen to this. I understand this to be the conquering weapon. The death of the son of God set forth as the propitiation for sin. Sin must be punished. It is punished in Christ's death. And here is the hope of men. The victory over the enemy is right here. The substitutionary work. He takes my place. And in my place, I'm given his righteousness. Then it is conscience, conscience renewing. If we could create a target for which the devil would shoot his fiery darts at, what do you think it would be? He goes right for the conscience. I remember, and I, I think probably most of you will relate to this, if not all. Do you remember the first thing after the Lord saved you? That absolute... um Cleanliness of conscience, where you knew that all of your sins had been forgiven and washed away, do you remember that you ever had a guilty conscience? Conscience is the target of the enemy, and he uses it to his advantage. In Hebrews 9, 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What is the conscience? We can have... Consciences, we talked about Romans 1, that are seared with a hot iron. We have offended it so many times it becomes calloused and and lacks all sensitivity to sin. Our conscience is not the law, but it is what accuses or excuses us. If, If I could use this analogy, if I'm speeding, the conscience is not the speed limit sign. That's standing outside. That's the law. If I look at the law of God, the, the speed limit sign says 55. And if I'm doing nine over, this is what we like to say, right? I'm still breaking the law, aren't I? But the conscience is Mrs. Leahy sitting in the right-hand side of the seat that says you're doing 64 in a 55. You're going too fast. That's the conscience. It's not the law. A conscience can be either biblically or unbiblically informed, can it? We talk about a weaker brother. What is a weaker brother? Somebody who does not have a biblically informed conscience and therefore has a guilty conscience for something that they ought not. But Satan loves to use our conscience. And the scripture says our conscience is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Hebrews chapter 10. If we have a clean conscience before God and we know that our sins are forgiven and we are washed, what then do we have boldness to do? Yes, Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, what is our confidence based on? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith. Listen, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What is he saying? If you know your sins are forgiven and you are washed, your conscience is clean. What keeps us? Remember what Satan does? He is the severer of relationships. What will he tell you in his accusations? You're not clean enough to go to God. Stay away. You don't don't want to go to the throne because you're going to be uncomfortable there because you're dirty. How do we have confidence to enter the holy place? Scripture says by the blood. Being washed in the blood gives us confidence. And it's interesting that Paul, I, I believe Paul is the writer of Hebrews, Paul ties our access to God through the blood. He ties it to our relationship with each other in the same passage. Verse 23 he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. What happens when a Christian gets tangled up in sin? Are they regular attenders to the body of Christ, to the Lord's table? Mm, It's a little uncomfortable. That's how Satan works. He loves to take the stragglers and pull them away from the body. And sever that fellowship and sever that relationship. And what he's saying is here, the blood of the lamb cleanses your conscience. You have no reason to shirk away and to hide from your brethren. No reason. Draw near with a heart in full assurance. It is also, by the way, conscience cleansing. First John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, please listen to this. If you get nothing else this morning, listen to this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses, cleanses us from all sin. If you read it in the King James Version, how does it read? It, what does the blood do? It cleanseth. F. What is the F for? Present tense. It is showing an ongoing action. Okay. The blood of Jesus is cleansing us from all sin. Listen to this carefully. If we say, now who is he talking to? John is talking to the little children, the brothers, the believers. He's talking to the saint. And he says to the saints, if if we say we have no sin, what? You have advanced in your spiritual maturity. No, he doesn't say that. If we say we have no sin, what? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Peter Sharnock, the Purit- or Stephen Sharnock, the Puritan, says this, the blood of Christ cleanseth not half cleansed or shall cleanse. This notes a continued act. There is a perpetual pleading of it for us, a continual flowing of it to us, a fountain set open for sin, Zechariah 13.1. There is a constant streaming of virtue from this blood as there is a, of the corruption from our nature. It was shed but once. It is applied often, and the virtue of it is as durable as the person whose blood it is. The idea, and we talked about this in Bible study this morning, the idea of sinless perfection is an absolute lie of the enemy. Amen. Absolute lie. Because what happens if you think you don't need to shed blood of the Lord Jesus? Mm-hmm. What, is, what is the enemy afraid of? You think the enemy is afraid of us if we've got it? If we we got it, we got this. How did you say that, Mark? You don't got it. You don't got it. You don't got this. The devil loves it when we approach him in battle and we say, I got this. I'm good. Literally. And this is this is why this is such a deceptive lie. When I was I was converted at a very young age, and, and to my shame, I tell you this. I remember in my mind as a young teenager saying these words in my own head, I would never do that Mm -hmm. and fill out, fill in the blank. The Lord saved me at a very young age. And so the natural tendency was to think I'm not that bad. I mean, I, I, nobody had to bail me out of jail. I didn't have a drug addiction. And so the the reality of who I was in my nature was going right past me. And the Lord humbled me, absolutely humbled me for any one of us as a saint to say, I would never do that. The scripture says, if a brother falls or stumbles in sin, you who are what? Spiritual. Restore them. Who are the spiritual saints? The sinless saints? No. The mature saints that understand that if it were not for the grace of God and restraining me, I'd be in the same position. And so the intent of the spiritual believer is to, what, restore the one that's fallen. Not go over and beat him up and say, how could you do that? I could never do that. Be like me. It is a lie that we must stand on guard against. The blood of Christ cleanseth ongoing action. Revelation 7, 14, and I said to him, sir, you know, meaning who are these that are dressed like this? He said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white by exercising their spiritual gifts. No. No. They have made the robes white in the blood of the lamb. That's where we stand with the enemy. If you stand anywhere else, he will chew us up and spit us out. The blood of the lamb is eternity preserving. I promise I'm almost done. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true blood and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You know what the scripture says. Many people who've heard that said, what is he talking about? I'm getting away from this guy. They thought he was talking about cannibalism. They had no idea what he was talking about. The act of coming to the Lord's table and drinking that little glass of juice and the little cracker. What are we saying with that? It is a picture. If I drink the juice, what am I saying? I'm taking part in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's symbolism. We know this. We don't believe in transubstantiation where that becomes the literal body and blood of Christ, but it's a picture that we through faith are taking part in the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about cannibalism here. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for, for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. <clears throat> Our eternity is secure. Ultimately, one of Satan's greatest deceptions and lies and, and, and accusations against the saints is, well, you're not a saint. You're not secure in your eternal destiny. If you've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal destiny is sealed permanently because he has secured it. Then, lastly, the blood of the Lamb is saint sanctifying. Hebrews 13 12. So, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The blood of the Lamb doesn't just justify us, that is, declare us to be innocent legally at the, the heavenly bar, if you will, but it also sanctifies us. The fighting of your sin, the battle with your sin is conquered and achieved through the blood of the lamb. So here the great weapon of victory is given. How do we use it, though? How do we use it? Well, the answer is very simple. We have to apply it by faith. The scripture says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. Their testimony was that the logos, the truth about the blood, what? Applied to them. When Satan came to destroy them, what did they say? The blood of the lamb is on the doorpost of my life. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, by faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. Listen, so that the destroyer of the firstborn, what, might not touch them. How did Moses apply the blood to the doorframe of his home? Well, he believed the promise of God. What did God say? If you do not apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, what am I going to do? I'm going to take the life of your eldest firstborn son. Moses believed and he applied the blood. That's the picture here. It's that simple. If you believe and you have been born again in the spirit of God and he has washed you in your sins The blood has been applied to the doorpost of our lives. Satan can't enter. He can't touch us. But as we just read in John chapter 6, unless you eat the flesh, unless you drink the blood, there's no eternal life. It's one thing to talk theologically about the blood of the lamb and all that it does. And I just gave you 10 examples from scripture of what the blood of the lamb did, what it does, what it has secured for the believer. That's great. And Satan respects that. He fears it. He quivers and shakes in his proverbial boots. He doesn't wear boots. He's a spirit. But if he did. But what he doesn't fear is the professor. Professor of faith the 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 professor of christianity who has not been washed in the blood he has no fear one last spurgeon quote as we finish up and matthew i thought of you when i read this because you're always getting you know new shiny fun things when a man gets a sword you cannot be quite certain how he will use it a gentleman has purchased a very expensive sword With a golden hilt and an elaborate scabbard, he hangs it up in his hall and exhibits it to his friends. Some things never change. (laughs) Occasionally, he draws it from the sheath and says, feel how sharp the edge is. The precious blood of Jesus, listen to this carefully. The precious blood of Jesus is not meant for us merely to admire and exhibit. We must not be content to talk about it and extol it and do nothing with it. We are to use it in the great crusade against unholiness and unrighteousness till it is said of us, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. This precious blood is to be used for overcoming and consequently for holy warfare. We dishonor it. this. Listen to this carefully. We dishonor it if we do not use it to that end. Some, I fear, use the precious blood of Jesus only to quiet their consciences. Think about what he's saying. Some, I fear, use the precious blood of Christ only to quiet their conscience. They say to themselves, quote, he made an atonement for sin. Therefore, let me take my rest, unquote. This is doing a grievous wrong to the great sacrifice. I grant you that the blood of Jesus does speak better things than that of Abel, and and that it sweetly cries, peace, peace, within the troubled conscience. But that is not all that it does. A man who wants the blood of Jesus for nothing but the mean and selfish reason that after having been forgiven through it, he may say, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, hear sermons, enjoy the hope of eternal felicity, and do nothing. Such a man blasphemes the precious blood and makes an unholy thing. We are to use the glorious mystery of atoning blood as our chief means of overcoming sin and Satan. It is power for holiness. See how the text puts it. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. These saints use the doctrine of atonement not as a pillow to rest their weariness, but as a weapon to subdue their sin. Oh, my brothers, to come to some of us, atonement by blood is a battle axe and a weapon of war by which we conquer in our struggle for purity and godliness. A struggle in which we have continued in for many years. By the atoning blood, we withstand corruption within and temptation without. This is that weapon which nothing can resist. You see what he's saying? The blood of the lamb is not merely for the cleansing of our conscience and the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, it is. But what about the battle that you have in your life with ongoing sin? What did we, what did we study this morning? Jesse took us through. Why do we, why do we battle with indwelling sin? Why? He use the example in, in second Corinthians where Paul says, you know, after much revelation, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Why? To keep me humble. Mm -hmm. Why do we wrestle with sin? And by the way, wrestling with sin, if you're wrestling, demonstrates that you are alive, that you are a believer. There is no second class Christian, by the way, in scripture. You're either a child of God or you're not. And if you are doing battle with sin, be encouraged because you're alive. You say, well, I, I, I fail. I lose that battle sometimes. Look at what we're talking about. What do we do when we fail? What do we do? Claim the blood. We claim the blood. Go right back to the source, to the cross. This is how we do battle with our sin. Lastly, the cause of victory is the blood of the lamb. We've looked at that. Applied to me. If the blood is not applied to me, it's, it's, not, it's not victory for me. It's hypothetical. But what is the effect of the blood applied to me? Look at what it says. For they love not their lives, even unto death. This is written to the seven churches, some of which who have martyrs. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, he says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If any would come after me, what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, that cross for some could be the cross of martyrdom. But that cross for others could be what? Mortify your members fight with sin the christian life is not passive and for those who have been washed in the blood of the lamb they love christ more than they love their own lives that's a net effect of being washed in the blood for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it we talked about why we have suffering to loosen our grip on this world the world is a powerful magnet But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you had every dollar in your bank account that you ever wanted. And then some. But in order to get that, you had to give up eternity. Would you do it? Mm -hmm. Say, well, that's logically a bad decision. But that's a decision so many people have made. Matthew Henry says, the servants of God overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb as the cause. By the word of their testimony, the powerful preaching of the gospel is mighty through God to pull down strongholds by their courage and patience in sufferings. They love not their lives so well, but they could lay them down in Christ's cause. I'm going to close this morning with a homemade catechism for kids. So for all the little people that are listening. What is the chief end of man? The answer to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Most of you know this. What is the point of the whole Bible? Kill the dragon, get the girl. Who is the dragon? Satan. Who is the hero that kills the dragon and gets the girl? King Jesus. Who is the girl? Jesus' people, his bride. How does King Jesus kill the dragon and get the girl with a wooden sword stained with his own blood? What is the name of King Jesus's wooden sword? Cross, our greatest weapon in defeating the enemy. There's nothing new here. Every saint that is in the presence of God rejoicing in victory to the last saint that will be redeemed from this earth will say the same thing. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And it is no different for you and I let's pray. Heavenly father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder Lord, We, we so easily forget what it is that you have achieved for us through the sacrifice of the lamb. Our tendency is to sanitize it and to make it acceptable, but the reality of it is, is the gospel is bloody, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, I ask that you would remind us of that fact that you took our place, you shed the blood of your beloved son, the spotless lamb of God that had no blemish, no fault, no sin. So that our blood would not have to be shed for our own sin. And in our place, we get the righteousness of the lamb. Lord, we stand in that this morning. We thank you that we have victory over the enemy. He is deposed. You have put him down. Our victory is secure. The shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ guarantees that we will be with you in glory one day. Thank you for our time together this morning, and I pray that you'll bless our time at the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.